Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of VAE Systems for this episode. I am talking today with two really special individuals, and I would love to have you go ahead and introduce yourselves. I will start with Dr. Moon. Sure. Thank you. Very excited to be here um, and to be able to talk through this very important topic with you. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Andrew Moon. I'm a clinical psychologist. I am with the Defense Suicide Prevention Office, otherwise known as DISPO, because we love our acronyms of the federal government. My role with DISPO is actually the Senior Advisor for Partnerships, Engagement, and Education. So uh, really making sure we're connecting with all of our stakeholders and collaborators and making sure they have what they need to, to really engage in suicide prevention effectively for their systems, communities, organizations. Thank you so much, Dr. Moon. And Dr. Stumpf-Patton, I would love for you to introduce yourself as well, please. Thank you so much, Nikki. My name is Dr. Carla Stumpf-Patton. I'm coming to you from TAPS, a Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, where I am the Senior Director and oversee our suicide prevention and postvention programs. So we are there to support all of those who are grieving the loss of anybody who has ever served. And we do help around all causes of death, including suicide. We support all of those relationships with engagement and outreach and support, but we also do a lot of external supports with units and leadership and consulting and training specifically around postvention and the model and the work that we do at TAPS. Thank you so much for introducing yourselves. And September is Suicide Prevention Month, and it's such an important topic to talk with in general, but especially for our military-connected families. I didn't know if you wanted to first start by telling a little bit about the sensitive nature of the topic. Yes, suicide in itself can be challenging sometimes to talk about, particularly if it's a newer conversation, but it also might bring up different emotions depending on how people have been impacted by suicide. So we just want to start out kind of establishing some safety with that and to say that, you know, if this brings up certain emotions or experiences that between myself and Dr. Moon and, and, and Dispo and TAPS and, and MSEC, that we have resources that are here to help, to support, to listen. And I believe we'll be sharing some of those resources throughout the podcast in, in case people need to connect to care. Definitely. And thank you so much for starting with that, because I felt like that was really important to kind of frame the conversation. So why is this topic so important, especially for the military community? Really great question to start with. The grieving process itself can be extremely complicated for everyone, and it can be incredibly tough for adults to make sense of loss. And then when you add on the complicating factors that can be associated with death by suicide, it can be hard to imagine a child making sense of not only what's going on, but also how they're feeling. So taking time to really address how military families and children are impacted by losses is particularly important. For those in the military community, death by suicide may have even more of a struggle associated with it. Those in the military community, especially the family and children, they may feel a bit more disconnected from their supports that they've kind of grown into. And, and no longer having the service member present in their lives 
may make them believe that they're no longer part of that integral community that surrounds them. Not to mention some of the potentially negative things we may believe or are taught about suicide, bringing stigma for those in the military and those not. Um, it makes sense that conversations that we're having like these really focus on normalizing the topic, breaking the stigma, and really ensuring that those in the military community don't feel disconnected or add, add another level of disconnection because there is this aspect of suicide involved in their loss. Lastly, I'd like to throw out the term postvention, which is something we talk about often in suicide prevention. Postvention, for those of you who may find this as a new term, really is kind of the support we give to those impacted by suicide. And having conversations like these, making sure that there are opportunities and connections present for those impacted by suicide, really in the long run is, is going to be supportive of them, but reduce their risk for suicide in the future. So really, uh, so you started with a question of why is this so important? And there, there are quite a number of reasons, but when it comes down to it, keeping connection and making sure that those in the military community know that the support doesn't go just because someone has died by suicide is particularly important. And Dr. Stubb-Patton, do you have something you'd like to add? Dr. Moon summarized that so well. I think, you know, you know, one, we're starting a conversation and just opening up a dialogue, right? We want to do everything we can to always reduce stigma and normalize a conversation that really could be life-saving. And, you know, as he had mentioned around postvention, which is a large part of what we do at TAPS, of course, with our military families who have, you know, endured a suicide loss, we know that postvention is a critical component of prevention that we want to do everything we can to reduce risk for mental health concerns, substance use, addiction, and any other type of emotional crisis or concerns of suicide. So being proactive and learning about this now and learning the language and understanding how to navigate this conversation can also be very empowering, particularly if a family or an individual has been impacted and might not feel so in control about th their grief and what is in store for them. So starting out learning about this topic and then rebuilding that support system and knowing that you don't have to go through this alone. You have a community of peers and resources who are there uh, to help you along the way. Thank you both. And I really feel like you answered what was going to be my next question, which was, staying connected to the community while grieving? And can that be really supportive for the families um, of those that are experiencing the, the loss? As a peer-based grief support organization, that is what we do at TAPS. And, and many of us who work for TAPS are loss survivors uh, or veterans or military families or sometimes all of the above. And so, you know, we are a peer. We have been through that loss and we are there to try to be, you know, a living and breathing example of hope that people can survive this and that there is a community of peers who have been down this road that people don't have to go through that alone. And we have found that when you can combine that peer-based support of people who are walking a similar journey and then combine that with maybe professional supports or clinical care if and when that's needed, it can really make a positive impact in how people cope and, and heal with loss related to suicide. Absolutely. I would uh, just to echo um, coping with loss by suicide is, is, is tough and coping through that process is tough. Connection is, is one of the most universal coping tools. It can help with a variety of things and especially in this case, connection 
really can ensure for a child there's a sense of stability that those people in their lives that have been there through the good times and now potentially a harder time in their life, they're still there. And so connection brings support, it brings stability, and it is incredibly important for the, the process of grief. Well, thank you both for that. I think it is really important having that connection and staying connected to the community. And so I know we're Earlier, you spoke a little bit about talking about it, opening up the dialogue and and making that okay. You know, how do you begin the conversation, whether it's a parent talking with a child, a family member or friend having to have the conversation with the individual that's experiencing the loss? I feel like the conversation's difficult, can be difficult all around. Sure, sure. Um, I'm sure uh, Dr. Stumpatton has a myriad of tools, so I won't take all of this under there. But I would say one of the first things when I talk to someone who's trying to become more confident and and competent in in talking about suicide loss is actually to take some time to check in with yourself before you dive into the conversation. We learn so much, whether that's through our media, through our parents, through our heritage, through our spiritual faith about what suicide means really understanding for yourself how you think and feel about suicide and uh, the loss of someone by suicide is really going to be important because it's going to, it's going to be important because it helps frame how you're going to give that support. So um, for example, if you've gone through a process in your life and you have some negative stigma attached to suicide, you may end up bringing that to the conversation, which likely isn't going to be particularly helpful for someone who's going through their own grief process. So I always encourage someone to start with themselves before diving into the conversation. The other thing that comes to mind once you've done that check-in is there's really not going to be a right time or right way. There's not going to be a lot of concrete advice coming from me other than know that with a child specifically, they're going to know that something's going on. Um, They're going to know that something has changed. They're going to know that this loss has occurred. So avoidance of that is probably not going to be the most helpful. So when the child gives cues, it could be things as simple as something sad has happened. That is an opportunity to engage and an opportunity to kind of share what feels appropriate for that child, knowing that children at different ages, different pieces are going to be appropriate. But knowing that you are open to and supported through and being a stable figure as part of that process is going to be particularly helpful for the child. Dr. Stumpatton, what what am I leaving out? We're, we're I, I, I <laughs> no, thank you. That was such a great segue. I think just continuing with that. It's probably one of the most common questions that we get a lot from parents who are caregivers who are raising children is how to start this conversation and how to talk to children. So I think, as Dr. Moon had said, I think first starting out with the adult, and sometimes that is, as he said, kind of checking on yourself and how you feel about that, but also learning how to have that conversation so you, then you feel more equipped and empowered and maybe having some knowledge about how to start that conversation I think it's good to to know you don't have to go through it alone. So maybe you might have a support person with you, you know, in the very beginning to maybe help initiate that conversation and and kind of meeting your child with their, you know, age and developmental levels and meeting them where they are with what they need. You know, we would suggest starting out with a foundation, you know, even even when you have the time or the luxury to do that. So what I mean by that is you don't have to have this whole conversation and like one and done. You can kind of start laying the foundation of becoming or on the way to knowing, right? And so bits and pieces 
that might be all that they need to know about in the beginning. And, and then also knowing that it's also never too late to start this conversation. It's not uncommon for us, you know, to talk to somebody that might have started a different conversation with a different explanation around perhaps a different cause of death. And that just usually means that people are doing the best that they know of at the time. And now they want to learn more and maybe restart that conversation. So it's never too late to do that. I think it is important to kind of build a, a foundation of honesty and trust because you want, you know, kids to know that they can come to you and talk openly about the questions they have, particularly around mental health issues and grief and loss. And so sometimes that might be a parent saying, you know, we had this conversation in the past with what I knew at the time, but I learned some more information and I'd like to have that conversation again. And that might be with, you know, older children. You know, it's never too late to start doing that. And for younger children, you know, you can start those conversations out in bits and pieces that are kind of easy to digest. And we do have some more resources on, you know, our website. We have some handouts and, and such um, if parents are looking for more guidance and some suggestions with that. I think those were really great tips that you gave. I love that you said you don't have to have the conversation all at one time. Because I think as parents, we think we just have to talk about it. We have to do the whole thing in <laughs> one fell swoop. And it can happen over the course of a period of time in multiple conversations. The other thing that I found really interesting about what you said, Dr. Moon, is I, I was talking with someone this past summer about unprocessed trauma. And it was so eye-opening for me that there's some things that I have experienced and I bring that in to relationships and I bring that into my parenting and I bring that into my interactions with others. That was something that was really um, important for me to think about as well. Uh, Dr. Stumpfatten, you'd have something you'd like to say? Yeah, you know, as we were talking, I thought of two other quick things to add to that. And this kind of carries on to what you just said, Nikki, that sometimes as the adults, why it can be really helpful for us is the more that we can have a deeper understanding of how this is impacting us. When we have these conversations with our kids, it's very important for us to try to kind of maintain that more calming, non-anxious presence, even as difficult as it may be, because they're going to go off of that and feel that. And that just kind of speaks to why it's important that we have the space and time and a safe space to talk about that with the adults so that we can feel prepared. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to add on about kind of having this continuous conversation, realistically speaking, it will be an ongoing conversation, right? Because this is going to be things that children might need to be revisiting, particularly as they age or grow into different developmental phases, new questions and, and new thoughts or concerns might keep coming about. So I think preparing yourself, knowing you don't have to know all the answers right now, you don't have to have all the conversations right now, but everything you do now, the hopeful part is that you are laying a stronger and stronger foundation of building blocks for all of these subsequent conversations that now you can refer back to of, you remember when we had the last conversation and what we've, you know, what we've learned since then or new information. So it's something that you can, I think, use as a tool as you grow together and learn together. Very important to really talk about. And since we're, we're already kind of talking about the adults, what's the importance of them having some self-care while they're grieving? 
Well, we've already started to touch on that a little bit, right? But I think to expand on that, I think it's also important to remember that we don't want to put the heavy load of our learning and understanding on kids too, right? So we need to make sure that we have the space, the time, and the people in the adult world that we can talk it through and process. And that could be our peers, you know, people like, for example, if we get connected people to some of our peer mentors and our peer-based support at TAPS and perhaps, you know, people going to a suicide loss and bereavement group, you know, they would likely perhaps in their own circle of family and friends have support people that they can talk to. And then also maybe professional support through um, a trauma-informed therapist or a grief counselor. And, you know, the more you have, you're going to have a, a strong support network and it's going to equip you then to be even more stabilized and equipped to, I think, have those conversations with your kids. So really what you're doing is you're leading by example that, you know, you're getting the help too and that you're talking through this and that's all, it's okay. In fact, very normal to have those questions and, and maybe cry and be able to talk to people who can support you. And so that's a positive thing for kids to, to know, because a lot of times parents are afraid that if the children see them cry, that, you know, it's going to be upsetting. Now, we don't want to be more upset and crying than the children all the time. But I think it's it's normal and it's okay for children to know that you're sad too and that it's okay if they see you cry and that normalizes the grief experience. Then reinforcing that as a family that we're going to be okay, that we're safe, we're all going to get you know help that we need and we're together we're going to find a way to keep moving through this. And I'll, I'll turn that back over to Dr. Moon to see what he might like to add. Goodness, I... Everything you said, yes, yes. I would say the modeling part feels huge. Understanding that children are, even through this, are still making sense of the world. And so you as a parent, if you're demonstrating where it's okay to get support, it's okay to appropriately express your emotions. It's okay to be sad when something sad happens. I think it is, is amazingly important to do that. You have to be taking care of yourself. The, the saying on the airplane is put your own oxygen mask on first. And it, it definitely rings true where... You can be much more helpful to others that you're hoping to support if if you know that you're in an okay place, uh, at least through your own process of, of grieving and, and replenishing your own battery. It's emotionally heavy to help people through the grieving process and, and children need an incredible amount of support on a good day. Um, so for something like this, making sure that your own battery is charged and that you've taken care of yourself and that you're in a place that you can attend to them as much as they need to be attended to is, is so incredibly important. That was all just great information, really, about taking care and of yourself. And I love the the comment you made, Dr. Moon, about the oxygen mask, because I think that's that's pretty important as well. So what have you found helpful for providers and caregivers to keep in mind when explaining death and grief to young children? I think a lot of it that we've already discussed really still applies when we think of a provider or someone who may not be in the immediate family. One, checking in with yourself, making sure you're not bringing your own bias to that conversation. Two, knowing that you're going to have the conversation probably multiple times in multiple ways um, as a child progresses through development, but also as they begin to understand more and more about the situation. Um, it's, it's going to be particularly important to continue to reapproach and address questions and emotions that come up as it evolves in the child's mind and the process of grief. I would say something we haven't 
quite touched on yet more directly is just kind of understanding the narrative that the family is proceeding with just in terms of being on the same page with other adults that are helping to support the child. So making sure that if you are a provider, it's not just about being present with the child that you're checking in with an adult on what would be most helpful, how they're proceeding in their conversations, making sure that you're aligning with them in terms of how they feel like their child is needing support or questions that are coming to them. So don't feel like you're alone. I would say this to any provider in any situation. Consult, engage, understand who else is present to support the child. I think that feels particularly important. I think that leads in to how do you know when it's more than just grief? And as a parent or a caregiver, when do you know if you should start seeking professional care? I feel like in something like this, you may already be thinking about counseling or starting counseling just with the loss, but that's something to kind of think about. And I'll start with you, Dr. Stumpatton. Sure. I think, you know, this is a really important part of that conversation, right? Because now we're shifting it towards safety, well-being, you know, concern for one another's welfare, perhaps if they're having any type of emotional crisis or thoughts of suicide. And so depending on the age of the child, of course, that, that conversation might sound a little bit different, but understanding that grief in itself is a very normal reaction to loss you know, changes in behavior are going to be common, right? But what we have also with suicide oftentimes is the element of trauma in addition to that. So, you know, people who've been impacted could be coping with with trauma and having symptoms around that, which also can really kind of complicate that grieving process and why having all of those supports and particularly maybe some of that extra um, professional care could be really helpful. So with children, I think, you know, when you start being concerned, if you start seeing even more kind of extreme shifts and behaviors, particularly if they're not eating, if they're not sleeping, if it's maybe um, not so direct, right? If there's an extreme change in behavior, a lot of times with children that might be coming out in school and changes of behavior at home. But also if they're older, they might be expressing thoughts about, uh, they might be, you know, talking more about death, dying. They might make comments related to suicide. You don't know what that means unless we we ask and we explore that a little bit more so what is really important in that circle of care you know your support network is also pulling in like your your primary provider so their pediatrician and doctor so you're not going it alone you have some of the support and individuals that if you are needing uh, more care for example at, at taps that's something that if a family's needing a referral for counseling you know, we can support them in that, but we would all also remind them we want to make sure that they get their family doctor involved, that they're making sure that there's not something medical going on, and that we keep that dialogue kind of open to exploring what that deeper meaning might be. I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Moon to see if he wants to kind of add some. There's a lot. This is a big conversation. But I'm going to let him give a little bit of input too. Yeah, sure. That's exactly what I was thinking. This is a big, I, we could do a whole podcast on right. just, this, just this topic. My mind goes in a few different directions. And I think, Dr. Stumpatton, you you hit the nail on the head is there's going to be a spectrum in terms of, of the response. Grading is, is different for everyone. And we don't need to or want to pathologize grief necessarily. 
to say that it's a mental illness, to say that someone needs to go running to a counselor because they're experiencing something that is, is normal. Grieving is a, a, absolutely a normal process. And there are going to be moments where it turns into, for some people, something that is really impeding their life. It's impeding their day-to-day, as, as you mentioned. Sometimes it's eating, sleeping. For children, it could be behavioral concerns coming out in different ways. So for a medical professional, which is what I tend to be, and sometimes when I wear that hat, it's looking for that kind of impediment. If, it, if it's getting in the way, if it's, if it's really impeding kind of the day-to-day, it might be time to talk to someone. And again, it doesn't have to be jumping to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It could be mental health provider, it could be a spiritual counselor, depending on what your access to that would be. Non-medical counseling is a big part, especially in the military community, not jumping to specifically a mental health diagnosis and, and jumping into counseling. All of that being said, I think it's particularly important, as Dr. Pat said, to make sure that you're just aligning with with the supports that are present. Um, and so um, checking in with with teachers, checking in with providers, checking in with daycare providers, like whoever else is engaging with the child, really getting a full picture of of what's happening is going to be particularly important. Hey, I was just going to add something else to that too. I think you know, and we referenced about those conversations, maybe in the early days, you know, or the earlier times that now you could make a reference to. You know, you could say, you remember when we talked about. If there was ever something that we were worried about or concerned or if we were struggling with that, we could always talk about it. So you can kind of draw from that, use that dialogue to maybe continue that conversation. And I think the other thing that might be important too, if you have children who are, say, young at the time of the loss, knowing that things could definitely change as they go into new developmental phases. So it's not uncommon, you know, for us at TAPS to maybe have a family that maybe the loss has been 10 years, you know, like child might have been a toddler at the time. And now maybe they're going into adolescence or, um, you know, the teenage years or even young adulthood. And now there might be some concerns coming up, particularly maybe in the early, earlier days, maybe they weren't involved in or engaged in much in care, but they were able to kind of stabilize and get the care that they needed. But now new issues might be coming up around kind of identity that could be connected to their their grief that could be confusing for children and you know when you combine that with life changes and hormonal changes and you know transitioning you know through you know puberty and adolescence it could be you know a confusing time so just knowing that i think a lot of times parents might think okay well you know we did everything we went to a counselor we got them to grief camps we engaged in care they did everything that they could in their power at the time and things really might have stabilized so sometimes people might kind of be taken aback that now all of a sudden why why is this coming up now i thought you know we did that grief thing 10 years ago and that just kind of speaks to the importance that you know grief stays with us we can definitely stabilize and we can heal you know we're not going to forget about it but it's also important to know that things could come up and if and when they do that could be normal and we and now you have a reference point about knowing in the past when you knew that there might have been a need for help and you sought that help it actually was effective and it worked and we can do the same thing now with what we whatever we're facing Yes. I just want to give more and more to this topic because it is so important. I absolutely agree that the, the grief can be an evolution over time. And just because a child, for instance, says that they're okay right now does not mean that the, that you're done with that conversation and that those check-ins aren't going to be invaluable. 
And when we think about the the spectrum of need, obviously, if someone is expressing that they're having suicidal thoughts and intent, that that is a, a one extreme end of needing to get support. And please, yes, engage in, in immediate crisis support. But on on the the spectrum of support, uh, mental health engagement, engaging with a counselor or a spiritual advisor, can also be preventative. So we don't have to necessarily see red flags to jump in. Going through this event in and of itself is enough of a reason just to say, maybe it's time to check in. Maybe I should have some conversations. Um, maybe there are things I can be doing to help myself through this process. So don't necessarily wait for red flags, but when you see them, please, yes, address them. So it definitely sounds like communication, keeping the lines of communication open is really important for parent, for child and for anyone else that's in that circle or network that you have, whether it's teachers or providers, it sounds like that's really important. So I would love for you, Dr. Stumpf-Patton, to explain the different types of support. I know we've already talked a little bit about that, but there are so many. I think it's great for individuals to know that there's a lot of resources there for them. Sure. Yeah, I think sometimes we, we tend to forget, you know, what's out there. But, you know, in in terms of expanding your network of support, you, you know, be creative and kind of think outside of the box, because not everybody always has a close knit immediate family or perhaps, you know, with military families, they are geographically away from their normal support system. You know, the other military families tend to become part of that, right? But when we look at the different levels of support, sometimes those might be, you know, immediately in your circle of care. So it could be family members, friends, it could be, you know, people in your community, spiritual or faith-based leaders, you know, you might have even in your neighborhood or, or neighbors, you know, as we were talking about with kids, there could be a lot of support in the school system alone between you know, guidance counselors and school psychologists, and many times they might have support group forms for the kids. And so there could be some really good resources in the school setting. And then we also have like just other community agencies. So in your, think about in your local area, what you would have locally kind of face-to-face. So there could be a lot of hospices have bereavement support programs now. There could be children bereavement centers just locally in your area. There are a lot of suicide loss survivor support groups. They might not be military specific, but they are more kind of around like the cause of death. You know, at TAPS, we have our care groups throughout the country, you know, in areas where we have a lot of survivors. So there are a lot of those localized supports. And then there could be national nonprofits, you know, TAPS being one of them that might provide a lot of services and support that might be not be right in your neighborhood, but where you could connect to peers. And then I think if you think about more like professional level of supports, where again, this might be in your community through your medical provider, it could be through professional counseling, or maybe somebody who's really specialized in kind of trauma or perhaps trauma treatment, if that level of care is needed. You know, many times, one resource might even be able to tell you about or refer another resource. So that's why what's so important here is that we all work together, providers and nonprofits and and local organizations. And the more we can do that together, we're helping to strengthen that network of support for the people who need it. That partnership and collaboration, I think when it comes to the topic of suicide, 
is so important for all of us. So if you're a provider or a caregiver or anybody who is listening, think about how you might be a part of that support system. I think those are all great pieces of information in regards to support. And it actually made me think about the fact that it's okay to seek out that support. Because I think a lot of times, specifically in the case of suicide, sometimes it's something that you don't outwardly want to talk about, depending on the individual or for people to know about. And you're trying to kind of do it all on your own. And there's all of these resources that are available to you to support yourself as well as your children. I know we will put resources in the show notes for this podcast. So our listeners know that we'll put all of that, those links and those phone numbers and things available to you. And we'll put that information in there as well. I would love to just end the conversation with some words of hope or mantra that you might offer to a family who's moving through this process. And I think it's important for for those that are around the family that may be experiencing that, them having some advice of what do they say. So I'll, I'll start with you, Dr. Moon. So many things come to mind. What I would want people to know and remember when it comes to grief, specifically as it's connected to the suicide, grief isn't, is it linear? There's no right way to grieve. There's a lot of shoulds that are going to pop into your head, like should be over this. I shouldn't feel this way. I should feel differently. Children are going to have all of those same thoughts. So, so there's there's no right way to grieve. And, and I want to give pe- people permission to feel how they feel as long as they feel it. And as they're going through that, as, as complicated as that can be, they are not alone. And there are, are supports, whether that is what's in their family, community, Moral supports, there's so much out there. Don't let the shoulds get in the way of getting support for you or someone that you care about. And Dr. Stumpf-Patton, do you have any words of hope or or any advice that you would offer? Yes, absolutely. I think just carrying on with what Dr. Moon just said, you know, not it's so important to hear those words even over and over that you are not alone. And not only that, but you don't have to walk this journey alone and to know that you can survive this. The pain can feel so overwhelming that people don't know how they're going to manage, you know, another day. But we, but we want people to know that it is possible, you know, this can be a life change. It is a life changing event, but it's important to know that the grief that you're feeling is a reflection of love and you don't ever want to lose that. And grieving and moving forward and healing doesn't mean you're forgetting and you're you're loving your loved one any less, right? And so a few things to know that how you're feeling right now is not how you're always going to feel. And that with time and really good support that you can heal. And and we want people to know that that is a possibility. The hope exists. And with that, with the help and seeking that help, that this is something like connecting to those those resources. And being able to process that grief and heal can lead you on a hopeful way forward for for you and your children and to know that it is possible. You don't have to have the answers. You don't even know how you're going to get there. All you have to do is reach out and to trust in those who are there to help you and we'll get through it together. And the other thing is, I, I know I've said that 
love never ends, right? So like the grief is a reflection of the love and then the love doesn't have to end. And that in time, you grieving can also be a way to carry on the memory of the loved one and honor their life, their service, and carry them forward in all that you do. So there can be a hopeful way to redirect the pain of that loss into something, into one's own journey and going forward. Thank you both for just talking with our listeners about this topic. I just wanted to highlight that that grief is the reflection of love and also that you have all those memories. The the memories don't go away of that loved one. So thank you both so much. I appreciate all of your advice and your tips. And this is such an important topic to discuss. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Moon. Thank you, Nikki and MSEC. It's an honor to be here. I'd like to thank Dr. Moon and Dr. Stumpf Patton for their time today, as this is an important conversation for us to have. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. We'd like to give a special thanks again to BAE Systems for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind 